We're very thankful for everyone's presence this morning. We have several visitors that are with us, and we're very glad to have you here and invite you to stop in and worship with us anytime you have opportunity. We have several that are also gone this morning. Um, Chance and Andy are down at Harrodsburg. I know a lot of the Schaefers are back at Richmond. Brother Mark's teaching over there today. Um, Brother Bob is sick. He's actually going to be seeing a specialist, as I understand, this week, and seeing if surgery is on the table, so we need to keep Brother Bob in prayer. Uh, Indy was running a fever last night and this morning, so that's why Savannah and her are not here. And there may be others that I'm overlooking, but we're very thankful for everyone that is here today. And we, I invite you to open up your Bibles. We're going to do a reading from Psalm 32, the 32nd Psalm. And go ahead and mark this in your Bible. We're going to be spending our time within this passage today. Uh, we will notice some other passages that are connected, but... We're going to spend the bulk of our time right here. We're going to read the psalm in its entirety. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. This is a psalm of David. We'll talk more about that as we go along. This isn't tied to one particular event in David's life. Uh, the central theme is that of forgiveness. And there were many times, as great as a man as David was, that he needed forgiveness. And he is reflecting back on the blessing that is included with forgiveness. We begin verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. All you upright in heart. The last time I taught out of Psalms, Wesley came up to me after services and he says, What's the word Selah mean? He noticed it in a different psalm. And I said, Why are you asking me questions? I don't know. The answer to you. Expect me to know everything here? There's not a good answer for that. Uh, they don't know what that word means exactly. They assume that it probably has to do with musical arrangements and kind of a transition within the psalm. But I, I just point that out at the beginning. When you encounter that in psalms, we don't know. Um, but I do want to talk about the structure just briefly about what's going on here. And this will give us a flow of thought. We're going to take this kind of verse by verse, but here's the big picture view. It's really divided into three parts, verses 1 through 5, verse 6 and 7, and verses 8 through 11. In the beginning, he is reflecting on the blessing that is forgiveness. Then he talks about the assurance of salvation, and then he closes out by giving instruction in wisdom regarding the topic of forgiveness. 
Okay? And then you have the breakdown there on the right side of the individual verses. And this is kind of the, the structure and the flow of thought that we're going to uh, pay attention to. You might notice in the B sections of the first and the last section, you have the difficulties of rebellion or the curses of sin. Whenever you have this term, blessed, that's pronounced, a lot of times you have associated with that curses. Okay? So you think about the end of the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is going back through the law with the people. He's telling them about the blessings if they keep the law and the curses if they fail to keep the law. Okay? There is blessing in forgiveness. There are curses outside of forgiveness. And so I hope you'll keep that concept in mind. Maybe this structure will be a little bit helpful as we work through the psalm in its entirety. Before we go any further, we have the privilege to go to God in prayer. Let's pray together this time. One preacher said that the the job of a preacher in, in preaching is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. I think that's a pretty good statement. Now that gets you in trouble sometimes. Uh, another guy says that the point of the preacher is to, his job is clarity. Making a passage so clear in its meaning that's unavoidable to make personal application. I hope that we can do that this morning as we go through this passage. I also think one time I heard Brother Kevin Presley preaching in a meeting, and he was preaching about bitterness and a little bit about forgiveness. And as he got down to the end of his sermon, he said, you know, he says, I know what you're thinking. You have somebody in mind that you wish would hear this sermon because you feel like this applies directly to them. He said, if they were here, they wouldn't get it. He says, because you probably don't get it either. We have a tendency when we're looking at Scripture to have somebody else in mind rather than ourselves in mind. And so as we go through this passage, I want you to, to conscientiously reflect inwardly on the teaching of the soul. Make application where it has in your life. If it brings comfort in the concept of forgiveness being granted, that's good and well. That's what it's intended to do. If you are in need of forgiveness, this is a psalm that is meant to afflict you and to cause you to run to salvation in God and Christ. Again, if you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 32. We're going to spend most of our time here this day. We're going to deal verse by verse as we go through. Notice verses 1 and 2, how it starts off. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You might notice firsthand here that blessed is... Twice repeated. That's how both of the verses begin. It's emphasizing the concept that forgiveness is a blessing that comes from God. A lot of times people will say the word blessed means happy. And that's not always true. Okay? That's a little bit oversimplification term. Blessed literally means approved by God. Okay? When you are forgiven by God, you stand within His approval. You stand right before God. Kind of connected with that concept of being approved by God is the sense of being rewarded. Whenever you have sin in your life and you are forgiven by God, you are now rewarded with something that you do not deserve. You have been forgiven. God doesn't owe you forgiveness. I want to stress that as we, we get going. That's a fundamental key aspect of what we're talking about when we talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that God does not owe us. Forgiveness is something that God in His grace and His mercy has given to us, though we are not deserving. We can never stand before God and say, you owe me forgiveness. 
No, all we can do is stand before God and beg that He would forgive us. And when we are granted forgiveness, we are blessed. Forgiveness is a great blessing that God bestows upon us. He makes us stand right or approved before Him as He takes away our sin and our iniquity. I read to you Romans chapter 5. This is what Paul had to say about the matter. Verse 8. But God shows His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation three times he emphasizes in this passage that we have been reconciled to God we have been forgiven by the blood of Christ by the death of Christ you know forgiveness is very expensive you don't believe that try forgiving someone forgiveness is very expensive and when we're talking about forgiveness and we'll talk more about forgiving one another later on in the sermon but I want to establish this at the very beginning Forgiveness is very expensive, and when we think about forgiveness, we need to think, first of all, about what God has forgiven us and what it costs for us to be forgiven. We could not seek our own redemption. Redemption came only through the shed blood, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what it costs God to forgive us. And that ought to put things in proper perspective. We ought to be a very grateful and thankful people who rejoices in the concept of forgiveness because of what has been forgiven us. Now, there's two concepts that he also introduces here. There's what we would call initial forgiveness and continued forgiveness. Okay? We're going to have to talk about that and unpack that just a little bit as we go along. There's the concept of what is required to receive Forgiveness the first time. In other words, to come into contact with the blood. We'll talk about that in a moment. After you have had the blood of Christ applied to your life, how do we continue to receive forgiveness moving forward from there? Okay? I want to ask you this to self-reflect and contemplate on. When you face difficulties in life, where does your mind go? A lot of times when we're facing difficult times, our mind goes to the problem and we begin to get depressed and we feel sorry for ourselves because we, we see the problem that we're dealing with. We don't know how to overcome it and we struggle with the concept of why is this happening, right? But really when we talk about our problems that are most of the time self-inflicted, now, sometimes things happen to us that are outside of our control. But a lot of times what happens to us is because of decisions that we've made. That's what Psalm 32 is talking about. When we put the reflection on God and we realize His grace, mercy, and forgiveness, that ought to put things in proper perspective. Okay? We sing a song a lot of times. Most people can sing by heart. Uh, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed. When you are discouraged thinking all is lost. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. 
That's really easy to sing that in the midst of a congregation when everything's going good. But what about when things are going bad? Do we realize that in difficult times, as children of God, we are very blessed people because God has forgiven us? And what matters not is it doesn't matter how we look in the eyes of the world. It doesn't really matter what's going on in the world around us. What matters primarily is our standing before God. And if we stand forgiven before God, we have a faithful rock, a preservation and salvation. We'll talk about this later on. That helps us in those difficult times. Even in the midst of difficulty, we should be a very thankful people for we are truly blessed. Now I want you to notice something here. You have the twofold aspect of what's going on here. David talks about, I had transgression that was forgiven. Transgression isn't just ordinary sin. That is rebellious sin. Okay? In the Old Testament, there wasn't sacrifice for that kind of sin. Okay? God was illustrating how heinous it was. And David is saying, though I have transgressed, God has forgiven me. God is willing to forgive the rebellious. Now there's some conditions attached to that forgiveness we'll talk about. But rebellion is forgiven. Sin, that's just sin generically. Sin can be covered. And iniquity or guilt can be not counted. Or in other words, God will declare not guilty. Now, I want you to notice that these three terms, forgiveness, covering, and counting not guilty or declaring not guilty, those are being used synonymously. To forgive means to cover. To cover means to not count. To not count means to forgive. They're being used interchangeably. Okay? That's really important because of what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 4. Okay? In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, the Bible says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you recognize the bottom part of that little passage? That's Psalm 32, 1 and 2, where we've just been reading. Paul is going back and he's borrowing the first two verses of Psalm 32. And he's making the same point. Now he will go on to talk about, he says here we are covered. And he talks about later we are covered by the blood of Christ. Now, there's a false doctrine that's taught, known as Calvinism. And Calvinism teaches that whenever God looks down, he sees us covered by the blood of Christ. In other words, he sees the blood of Christ. He doesn't see the sinner underneath the blood. Illustrate it like this. This is a picture Savannah took while we were in Hong Kong. We were riding really high up in the air in this gondola. And you look down, and that right there is a, a person, believe it or not. It's a person with a really big hat riding on a bicycle. Okay? This is the view that Calvinism presents. This is their illustration. They say, when God looks down, he doesn't see the person. He sees the hat. He's covered by the blood. That's not a biblical concept. Okay? Contextually, Psalm 32 is saying, forgiven, covered, and declared not guilty are all three synonymous terms. To be covered means that you have been forgiven. The sin is no longer present. You are clean. You are blessed. You are approved before God. Okay? 
Here's a better illustration of how we would use the term covered to make the same biblical point. Okay? You get up to the cash register, you're checking out, and you realize you've left your wallet at home. And you can't pay for what you need. And your buddy's there with you, he says, oh, don't worry about it, I got you covered. That means he steps in and he pays for what you can't pay for, and the problem goes away. It doesn't continue to exist. It goes away because it's been dealt with. That's the concept of biblical covering. It has been forgiven. It has been dealt with. When God covers, he forgives, he declares not guilty. Now, he does this, Romans 5, by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ was the price that was necessary to pay for the consequences of our sin. That's a, that's a price that we could never pay, and only the blood of Christ can pay. That's why in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, don't you notice, every spiritual blessing that God can give to man has come in Christ. Notice verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How has God forgiven us our rebellions, as David would say? Through the blood of Christ, which is a demonstration of his rich grace. Okay? The question is not, does the blood of Christ forgive? It does. The question is, how does a person gain contact with the blood of Christ so that they can be forgiven? Okay? God doesn't just force the blood of Christ on you. There's a decision that you have to make. Okay? Forgiveness requires a person coming to God on God's terms. And if they will do that, he's willing to forgive. Notice Galatians chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus... Now Paul's there. Paul said... In Ephesians 1, 3, in Christ are all spiritual blessings. In Christ we have the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Where is salvation? It is in Christ where his blood is. How do you get in Christ? By baptism for the remission of sins. That's how God adds you to his church. Now that is God's stipulation for initial salvation. You can try to do anything in the world that you want to. You can say, well, I have a better idea. Here's how I think God should grant forgiveness. Forgiveness does not come initially except as God has granted it through the shed blood of His Son. You gain access to it. It is in Christ, and you get in Christ through baptism. That's why on the day of Pentecost, the people would cry out to Peter and they say, Men and brethren, what should we do? And Peter responded that, not like modern preachers, modern preachers today say the sinner's prayer. Peter says, Repent, let every one of you be baptized for the remission of sins. Why do you do that? Because to get in Christ, you have to get baptized. When you are added to Christ, you have your sins taken away by the blood of Christ. That's what we call initial salvation. 
Whenever you are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you stand in a blessed condition approved by God. You are free of sin. It has been taken away by Christ's blood. Now, the question becomes, as a child of God now, now that you are in Christ, what do I do when sin comes back around? How do I deal with future sin? That's mainly what David is addressing in Psalm 32. This is the, the concept that has always been for the children of God. I would read to you again verse 2 of Psalm 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now pause there. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. When a child of God receives forgiveness from God, one of the conditions is that there is no deceit in the heart of the man. You cannot go to God with a deceitful heart and expect forgiveness. What do I mean by that? You can't go to God saying you'll give up something knowing that you're not going to give it up. That's not how forgiveness works. You can't go to God saying, I will admit that this thing is in my life, but I don't want to admit this thing over here is in my life. I'll give up some, but I won't give up all. It's not how it works. God requires a pure and an honest heart in order for forgiveness to be granted. Here's what we, the trap we fall into. We oftentimes think that as long as the brethren at church don't know, nobody knows. As long as my family don't know, nobody knows. As long as my wife or my husband, as long as they don't know, nobody knows. That's not how forgiveness works. Forgiveness depends on your heart with God. And God knows everything. Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you. That is our guilt. He's saying, we are guilty. We stand guilty before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Even the ones we think nobody knows about, those stand before God too. And you need forgiveness of your secret sins just as much as your well-known sins. And the only way you get forgiveness is by coming to God and clearing your conscience to Him. There can be no deceit. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We'll talk more about this concept as we go along. Forgiveness requires confession and repentance. You cannot get around that. You cannot hide or conceal your rebellion against God. God knows about it. It's not a question. God knows. The question is, will you acknowledge it to God and forsake it, confessing it to Him? Back up a few verses to verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You know what this passage is saying, literally? You have sin hidden in your life. And you come to church and you act like there is no sin. And everything's good. God's saying your worship is an abomination. He hates it. Now we have the concept a lot of times 
no matter how many sins is in a person's life, though we know about them, we're just glad they keep coming because if they come before God, maybe eventually they'll hear something the preacher is saying and they'll repent of that and they'll turn back and everything will be good. God's saying, if you come to Him and worship in prayer and you're holding on to your rebellions and you will not repent, He detests your presence and your worship. That's a very scary thought and ought to give us pause. Paul would say, whenever he gave the, regave the instruction concerning the Lord's Supper that we partake of every Lord's Day in 1 Corinthians 11, Therefore examine yourself, lest you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Examine yourself. If you have sin in your life, secret sin, and you come to God in worship, it is a detestable thing, and you bring judgment upon yourself. You cannot trick God. Psalm 32, verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. Notice there's four concepts here. He says, when I was silent. Literally, that means he's talking about, contextually, when I didn't confess. How do we know this? Because in the next line, he says, through my groaning all day long. He's making noises. He's groaning out in pain. But the noise that he's not making, the noise that he's silent about, is what he means to be making, the, the confession noise. As he states his problem to God. So he is silent. He will not confess yet. He is not uh, quiet. He is making pains of groaning all the day. He is in pain and misery. For day and night your hand is heavy upon me. There's no rest. There's no rest for this person. When they're awake, they're dwelling on it. When they're asleep, they're dwelling on it. Have you ever had problems that affected your sleep? Happens all the time. People... We don't handle stress well, even if it's not that stress that we've inflicted upon ourselves, but when it's inflicted upon ourselves, it's self-inflicted. It's called guilt. It's called a guilty conscience, and it affects you. I can know sometimes when my, one of my girls are lying to me just because you can tell there's guilt on them. Right? They don't have to say it. They know that what they've done is wrong, and it weighs upon them. It's heavy on them. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's as if I've been trying to go through life, walking through the desert in the middle of summer without any water. And he's just drying up. It's eating him. It is destroying him. The weight of the guilt of his burden. A lack of forgiveness, or we might say failure to properly deal with sin as God has required, has a spiraling effect. When you fail to confess your sin, there will be pain. When there is pain, there will be no rest. When there is no rest, there will be no strength. There is no end in sight. It continues on and on and on. You know how many, how many problems, physical problems or mental problems, can be attributed directly to sin? I'm not saying it's always the case, but depression. A lot of people are depressed because they have sin in their life that they do not get rid of. They don't know how to get rid of it sometimes. It should be a problem for Christians. Forgiveness comes through Christ and His shed blood. 
and pouring your soul out to God. People have problems of addiction. Why? They don't want to deal with their sin. And so they bring on another sin, hoping that it will help them cope with their first sin. And it just continues to spiral. You know why people have problems with PTSD? People come back from war, and they have a hard time forgiving themselves for things that happened in war. They get dried up. When you see a druggie that's on his last leg, you're seeing a person that sin has sucked the life out of. When you see people that are really struggling with PTSD or strongly struggling with depression, a lot of times, I'm not saying always with depression, but a lot of times, it's because sin is having a great burdenous weight placed upon them. Now, David's going to say in a moment, sometimes the problems we have in our life are there by God's grace. Now, that may sound like an odd statement. That's true. God afflicts those whom he loves with the hope that they will change. I read to you Proverbs chapter 3. You might recognize this from Hebrews, but it comes from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. God afflicts, he reproves his children in hopes that they will get back on the right path and do what's right. Sometimes as leadership of the church, we have to inflict discipline for the hope of getting people back on the right path. We have to operate in the same way that God operates. It is a demonstration of love. People often ask, they say, ask me a question like, why does God allow such bad things to happen to me? I want you to ask you a question in response. Could it be that sometimes the bad things that happen in life are demonstrations of God's grace? Is it not gracious that God chastens us rather than ending us? When we sin, God has every right to end our life in damnation. God's being merciful and gracious and long-suffering and that He allows time to continue. He allows us to suffer in hopes that we turn back. That's grace. Though it is sometimes painful grace. Notice verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You might notice some relation between this passage and verses 1 and 2. David talks about acknowledging sin. He mentions iniquity twice. And he also talks about transgression. Those are the three terms for sin that we use in verses 1 and 2. Okay? This is David's perspective on it. He says, when I acknowledged that I had sin in my life, that's when God forgave me. You want to be forgiven? Acknowledge your sin. When I did not cover it, when I quit hiding my sin, when I exposed my sin, God covered it. When I confessed, confess means to say the same thing as. When we confess our sins to God, we're telling God what God already knows, 
but let's God know that we know that He knows. Okay? We confess the same thing. And we say essentially, we are guilty and we do not deserve your grace. And in response, God declares you not guilty. How awesome is that? God forgives. God covers. God does not count iniquity when His children come acknowledging, exposing, and confessing their sin. I say this to people who are already children of God. That's you. That's the biblical solution to sin for Christians. If you're not a Christian, you need baptism. This don't work for you. But if you are a child of God, this is God's plan. You have to acknowledge, expose, and confess your sin. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Listen, that's a warning passage right there. That's a very strong warning. Pray to God and ask for forgiveness while you have time. Because there is coming a moment where the waters are rushing upon you. In other words, there's judgment. And when it comes to judgment day, it's too late. You don't get to stand before God and ask God, why has He sent you to hell? He'll tell you, well, I gave you 40 years, or I gave you 70 years, or I gave you however long on earth, and you chose not to seek me during that time. And when men stand condemned before God, it is their own fault. It's their own sin. It's not God's fault. God has done everything necessary in sending His Son to die for you. And when you reject His loving, gracious offer of forgiveness through Christ, we get what we deserve. Time does run out eventually. And there will be a moment where God cannot be found. Notice verse 7. In contrast to that, that not being able to find God. He says this, he says, You, God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Think about what he's saying here. When he has found, faced trouble, he didn't have to worry. Why? Because he stood right before God. Because he was enjoying the forgiveness that God had given him. And so, he had a hiding place when trouble came. He had a preservation in that time of trouble. And whenever he was struggling to get up, God was there shouting at him, I will deliver you. I will deliver you. Keep faith. I will deliver you. God is a faithful and awesome and gracious God. Think about these words David penned toward the end of his life in 2 Samuel 22, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and deliverer. That is what we just read in verse 7 summed up. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. David couldn't always say that. There were times where David was under the affliction of God because he had secret sin hidden in his life. 
In Psalm 32, he's recognizing the justice of God and also the grace that allowed him to get through those moments as he would turn back to God. Verse 8, he begins to give some instruction. Now, there's, there's disagreement on whether this is David speaking or if this is God speaking here. What I would say is this is the voice of wisdom. Whether it's the voice of wisdom directly from God or through David, this is the voice of wisdom. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is the path of wisdom versus the path of folly. It's being laid out before God's people and he's saying, look, I will teach you, I will give you instruction on the way you should go. Sometimes we do dumb things because we don't know better. Ignorance in life is a result of failure to seek God's word. For he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has exposed the path of wisdom. He has made it known. He has given the instruction. And he has also exposed the path of the fool. You sit down with people. They're having problems in their life. One of the things we have to do is remind them of the two paths. Sometimes point out which one they're walking down. There is a path of wisdom that brings blessing before God. And there is the path of the fool that is a hard, difficult life. And we have a choice to make. We get to freely choose which one we will do. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is, this is the concept of, I'm looking out for you. The reason I'm giving you instruction about the path you should go is because I'm looking out for you. I have your best interests at heart. I'll say this. When you're going through difficult times... And you're dealing with the consequences of decisions that you have made. Rather than wallowing in your misery. Turn to God for help. And turn also to his children. Ask for help. I want to, I want to share the passages of Paul in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If a brother is caught in any transgression, any transgression, any rebellion, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know what Paul's doing here? He's telling church leaders... That they not only have a responsibility to reach out to brethren who they see struggling in sin, they are also required to do it. Okay? Sometimes I'll go and talk to people, and they'll say, that's none of your business. I don't care. No, it is my business. God has commanded church leaders to help other brothers and sisters when we see sin in their life. We have to get involved. This is something that's uncomfortable. If you're a leader and you have to get involved in someone's sin, that's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's very sick. Sometimes it's very difficult. You are not always wanted. 
But you not only have a right, you have a requirement to be there and get involved. Why are we here? To help bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is part of the foundational concept to God's law. Helping your brothers and sisters as they deal with sin. And so, I want to say this. I want to make a two-way bargain with you. You see sin in my life? Come talk to me. Point it out. And I need to, when, when it's pointed out, I need to humble myself and recognize that there is sin that needs to be dealt with. That, that's, that's a two-way situation. We have difficulty because we have pride a lot of times. We have a difficulty humbling ourselves, acknowledging, confessing, and dealing with our sin, even when brethren out of love reach out. I'll talk to people sometimes, and they've got difficulties, and they come, and they're not really looking for solutions. They're really looking for more of a sounding board or somebody that will be on their side. And they'll start explaining all the problems to me. And they'll ask me what I think, and I'll say, well, what's the Scripture saying? Here's the Scripture. I think this Scripture is at the heart of the issue here. And they basically say, I don't like that. I don't think that works for me. And my response is generally, well, how's that working for you? You got problems in your life? You're miserable right now. You're coming and you're asking the question of, what do I do? Where is help? And I'm pointing you to the very God who dictates life. I'm saying this is what God has said you need to do to one, receive forgiveness, and number two, to walk down the path of wisdom. You don't like that. How's that working out for you? The path of the fool, the path of sin, is very difficult. And the longer you go down that path, the harder it gets. As we look at verses 9 through 11, I want you to keep verse 8 in mind. He's saying, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He is giving counsel because he's looking out for our well-being. And I, I certainly hope that what we're about to say, the counsel we're about to offer from God's Word, is taken in that light. I say this for well-being. I say this out of love and concern. Notice verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. I don't know if the term stubborn as a mule came from this passage, or if David's just recognizing what we've all recognized if you've had a mule. First time I ever got bucked off an in, uh, of an animal was off of a mule. Stubborn beast. I was talking to Walter Hunter here recently. He's dealing with a lot of pain. He's got sciatic nerve issues, and he's having to sit down when he teaches and he called me, he's telling me about this, how much pain he'd been in. He says, you know, I got to feel a little bit better. And I went out and started working on the farm again. I said, how'd that work out for you? He said, well, I'm, I'm in a bad way again. I said, yeah, you know, they say stubborn mules get themselves in a lot of trouble sometimes. Yeah. Well, I guess we know what's going to happen when we do what we do. We do it anyway. Why? Because we're stubborn people. Now, that's the, that's the path of the fool. That will always lead to more pain. You don't get better walking down that path. This is quite pointed. We put a bit and a bridle in mule's mouths or horse's mouths 
so that we can turn them. Why? Because a horse constantly wants to go his own direction. If you've ever had a horse and he's done riding, he wants to go back to the barn. And you have to fight with the bridle and the bit to get him away from the barn, right? That's what this is talking about. Sometimes beasts have to be coerced. And sometimes Christians do too. That's called discipline. There is nothing pleasurable about church discipline. There is nothing enjoyable about trying to force a Christian to do the right thing. And sometimes when you are holding the proverbial gun to a person's head and they are left with no decisions, they make a forced, coerced confession. And you know what? There is no joy in that. They don't, they don't receive the joy of forgiveness that God's talking about in this passage. Because they have a deceitful heart yet. It's not like a, a great burden has been lifted. They're just angry that they're in that position. That's how people are. A lot of when God afflicts His children... And they're about, they realize they're sinning. This is a consequence of my sin. And they keep doing it. Why? Because they want to keep going down this path. And they become more bitter and more bitter about it from their own decision, their own choice. Church discipline is necessary and required. And it's hopeful that the person will eventually get broken and seek forgiveness. And receive the joy that comes through forgiveness and confession. But it is a very difficult path. If you persist in your sin, it will bring problems. It's not a matter of if, it will happen. Notice verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Uh, Which one do you want? You want sorrow or joy? It all depends on the path you choose to walk down. And I can't make that decision for you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Let's talk about the good first. The steadfast love, that's the word has said. We've talked about this quite a bit. That is the covenant, faithful, loyal love of God. If you trust in God, God will loyally stick by you and shower His love and forgiveness and mercy and grace upon you. What an awesome, blessed privilege to have that type of relationship with God. That though we wander away, if we will come back to Him, He's always there faithfully waiting. But if we leave God, that's the bad, many are the sorrows of the wicked. I want to make some direct application of this. First to children. we got some, some kids that can hear and understand what I'm saying. And if you are under your parents' roof, you're still a kid. Okay. Your parents give you instruction, and they sometimes discipline you. 
Because they are looking out for your well-being. It's not fun, but they're doing it because they love you. They want what's best for you. They want a life where you get to enjoy God's love. Not a life that is filled with sorrow. And sometimes children can be very rebellious and not be open and welcome to that. And they live a life of pain. As a child, you need to learn to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. My dad would drive me nuts for this as a kid. I'd be in trouble. I was guilty. I knew I was guilty. Dad knew I was guilty. God knew I was guilty. Everybody knows I'm guilty. Why'd you do it? Or what have you done? Well, I did it, but Jody was there too. Or I, yeah, yes, slug Jody, but she provoked me. That's not a full getting it off my chest, is it? That's a, I'm partially responsible, but she's also guilty too, beat on her as well. It's not how it works. When Nathan went before David with David's sin, his secret sin, and David found out that God knew about it, and Nathan knew about it, and the whole country was going to know about it, and you and I today, centuries later, are still reading about it, you know what David says? I have sinned. You know what Saul says? Yeah, I sinned, but the people made me do it. That's the difference between Saul and David. David says, I sinned. He doesn't say, yeah, but Bathsheba, she was bathing naked on the roof. That wasn't good. He just says, I have sinned. And every time I would say, yeah, but that would say, no. What's David say? I have sinned. That's something we've got to learn from a young age. To admit when we are wrong. It's difficult to say, I was wrong. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It's difficult to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes we have in our mind that if we ask for forgiveness, the other people aren't going to forgive us. Sometimes that's true. That doesn't change what we have to do. It should impact the willingness to give forgiveness, realizing that we've been in the same state before. Maybe not before that individual, but before God. I'll say this to mothers and fathers. Don't let your children repeat the same sins of your life. Worst thing you can do to a child is say, do as I say and not as I do. Your children are learning from your example. If they see mom or dad unwilling to ever admit that they were wrong, They're going to have a hard time admitting it in their life. If they see their mom or dad harboring secret sin, they're going to grow up thinking it's okay to harbor secret sin. If they grow up seeing their parents fighting and hateful towards one another, they're going to grow up with the same concepts that it's okay. You know who I feel the most sorry for 
when people get divorced, it ain't either, either spouse. A lot of times, it's the children that's involved. Because the stubborn decisions their parents are making are going to have a lasting impact for the rest of their life and be forever changed. Parents have to learn to say, I'm sorry and I've sinned. And leave it at that. Even when it's not reciprocated, I'm sorry and I've sinned. I want to say something to husbands and wives, and I include myself in this. You ever have problems in your marriage? I mean, let's be honest, yes. Yes, we do. We all do. Why do we have problems? Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it's because one or both parties harbor wicked and deceitful problems. There can be no peace no comfort, no shelter when there is sin harbored in the home. It's not going to work. And eventually, it does not remain secret. Why do we have problems in our marriages? Because a lot of times we'd rather wallow in our misery than confess that we have sinned and seek the forgiveness of our God, of our spouse, and of our brethren. Why do we have problems in our marriages? Because sometimes we're filled with pride. And we cannot or will not admit when we have done wrong. That's a surefire way to destroy your marriage. Why do we have problems in marriage? Because we fail to give ourselves to prayer and fasting. You know what happens all the time in marriages? I talk to people all the time. A husband and a wife, they have fights. And they're, they're small fights, fights. They start out small. And then they build and they build and they build through years. Nobody ever says they were wrong. Nobody ever says they were sorry. It just keeps mounting up. And then it gets to a point where the couple separates. And they're no longer living together. This is what's referred to in the counseling world as practicing divorce. Counselors who have no biblical background at all reject the concept of trial separation. That's called practicing divorce. That's not how you reconcile. God's solution was, if there has to be separated, be it for prayer and fasting. If people would separate only as long as they could go without eating, we would resolve some problems quicker. Prayer and fasting is meant to drive people back to God. And it is difficult to be an open, honest prayer with God who sees your secret sins and not be humbled and confess them to Him. Be willing to deal with them. Why do we have problems in our marriages? Because one, one spouse seeks forgiveness. Sometimes the other spouse isn't willing to grant it. I want to ask you, how would our life be if God forgave us like we forgive our spouse or like we forgive our brethren? You know, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he would say, pray this way. And in that prayer, he included, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, is that how we want to be forgiven? Forgive me in the same way. 
that I am forgiven my Maybe when we are separated and we are praying and fasting, we should be praying, may you forgive me like I forgive this other party. Go home and read the book of Hosea. Whole book. You know what Hosea is about? God tells Hosea, I want you to go out and marry a prostitute. Now that's not a good success for, I mean, that's not a good plan for a successful marriage, is it? Go out and marry a prostitute. You know what? Through the whole book, she never gives up hooking. That's what she is. And he has a miserable marriage that is meant to depict the relationship of God with Israel. Israel is looked at, is described by God as a wicked, filthy prostitute. Who God is willing to go and buy off of the auction block whenever she goes up for sale. And bring her home and clean her up so that the relationship can be mended and move on. People say sometimes, oh, I can't get over this. I can't forgive this. We can't go back. Read Hosea and understand the forgiveness that God has for you and me. That's why I said at the very beginning, if we keep in mind what God has forgiven us, It keeps forgiveness in the proper perspective and helps us practice it better. Why do we have problems in our marriages? Because one or both spouses are often filled with anger and bitterness. What if God was bitter towards us when we sin? What if every time we sin and we came back, even committing the same sin sometimes, and we came back and we're pleading with God to forgive us, what if He, every time we sin, the bitterness just mounted and forgiveness was never granted? How could anyone stand? Why do we have problems in our marriages? Because sometimes we would rather nitpick the speck in our spouse's eye than acknowledge the plank in our own eye. Now that's the application of Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you judge, it will be measured back to you. You know what always happens when couples are fighting? The wife, all she can do is say bad things about the husband, and the only thing the husband can do is say bad things about the wife. I see the problem in their life, and you don't understand what it's like to live with this person all the time. All these sins, all these problems. What about us? Is the type of judgment we're rendering, is that fair, honest, just judgment? Is that the type of judgment we want to receive? Is that how God judges? Lastly, why we have problems in our marriages? Because generally speaking, you have two people that are stubborn as mules. We're stubborn and we refuse to change. We're stubborn and we refuse to swallow our pride. We're stubborn, and we refuse to stay within the God-given role that God's given us. That's why we have problems in our marriages. Ain't rocket science. God requires that we reflect His glorious image, that we become like Him. That we humble ourselves and beg for His forgiveness. Confess it. Say the same thing that He already knows. And He will forgive He will restore our relationship time and time again. If we want that privilege, we have to act the same way towards others. Listen again to verse 10. Many 
are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. He closes it out, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you do not share the joy of salvation and forgiveness at this moment, you need to confess your sins to God and get it right. There is joy. A burden is lifted when we confess to God with a clean, honest heart. If you're here this morning, you've never obeyed the gospel. You need contact with the blood. We talked about that. Believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God. Confess His name. Be baptized in water for the remission of sins. You're a child of God. And you have sinned, whether known or secret. The Bible says, confess your faults one to another. And pray one for another that you may be healed. You know why we confess sins? So that we might be healed. I don't know what problems you have in your life, and I don't know what you don't know what problems I have in my life unless I tell you. You can't help me carry my burden and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6:2, unless I tell you about my burden. That's why we confess. Confession is not about shaming people. It is about facilitating healing. A clean conscience and a burden being lifted. If you need to obey the gospel or you need to make confession of fault, come as we stand.